Welcome to Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural issues they explore. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. And I'm Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media, where we produce narratives for social change. On today's show, we're celebrating Woodmere's 2018 Annual, a juried exhibition which is now in its 77th year. Sid Carpenter, a sculptor and professor of studio art at Swarthmore College, selected the art for the exhibition and organized it together with my colleagues at Woodmere. The artists themselves are aware of the time in which they're living and that they're making in their art these announcements, these comments, these observations. You know, it, it seems like it's an alert. Pay attention is what I hear them saying in their work. The Annual is a showcase of contemporary work made across a wide variety of media by artists and craftspeople living within 50 miles of the museum. The Annual always includes pieces from Woodmere's collection as well as the jurors' own work. An important theme for the show itself is that you have artists who are making these connections that are contemporary, timely, things that are very, very poignant to themselves, but also being able to make reference to larger historical conversations. In this sense, the annual exhibition is a conversation over time and across a spectrum of work, and it speaks further to the museum's own collection, which provides the historic context for contemporary art in Philadelphia and helps to inform the experience of the artists in the exhibition overall. Here are the themes Sid Carpenter chose for this year's show and around which nearly 600 artists submitted their work to be juried. So in terms of looking at all of this work, I was interested in thinking about artists who were involved in some way with looking at the land, the landscape itself, the issue of, around place. And then from there, thinking about themselves, the physicality of it, the body itself. Here we are as inhabitants of this space and how we think about our own bodies, other people's bodies, the whole thing of occupying the space. And then the whole idea of moving towards the space or moving away from the space and the in interactions that go on between different groups. So this whole idea of migrating and moving back and forth, this blending of cultures and people. So I wanted to include work that reflected on all of those different ways and intersections of body, land, and movement. After a rigorous selection process, Sid and a team of curators at Woodmere were able to configure the show to include 100 pieces from 75 artists and craftspeople, not to mention several coming from the museum's collection and Sid's own work. And while we would have loved to have interviewed everyone in the annual for Diving Board, for the purposes of this episode, we're going to tell you about a range of artists who are representative of the work in the exhibition. And of course, you can come to Woodmere and see all of the amazing art in the 2018 Annual. The exhibition runs from June 2nd to September 3rd, and you can find an illustrated catalog online at woodmereartmuseum.org. I'm James Morton, and I'm a photographer, 
and uh, we're sitting in my loft on Callahill Street. When I moved in, it was like dope and prostitutes and strippers and, you know, my favorite types of folks. The area's been gentrified. It's now completely pacified, so there aren't any interesting people around anymore. It's that cycle where an area gets to be trendy because there are a lot of artists and also unconventional people who are in that area, and that makes it, quote, trendy, quote. Uh, the band called Tower of Power put out a, a very good song called What is Hip. It's an old song, but it's still uh, applicable to today's dynamic. I once lived, all right, we have a place called the Kimmel Center. I lived there for uh, about 30 years. But it was once a neighborhood. Uh, there was Gamble and Huff, the music producers on the corner, and there was gay bars and straight bars and this and that, and there were restaurants. Uh, it was a thriving neighborhood. Now it's the Kimmel Center. I got kicked out and my building, you know, and along with everything else, was demolished to put up the Kimball Center. James Morton grew up in West Philadelphia, and in his household, reading the Bible, church on Sundays, and the choir were part of his childhood. I was abandoned by my parents. I was raised by my grandmother. My father was a musician, and my mother uh, ran an art gallery, but they weren't around. And as I grew up, I became a musician and later I, I moved from music into photography, but I did this without knowledge or input from my parents. So maybe it's genetic. Growing up during most summers, James spent much time outside of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, cooling off in the fountains and with other kids. So I was close to art. I was just the kid outside swimming in the fountains. It never occurred to me to, to actually go inside. I didn't think that was for me. Just didn't seem to be part of my block view. And to this day, James says he doesn't really interact with institutions of art. I'm very annoyed about the cerebral nature of most contemporary art. I don't like what's been going on. I don't like people doing installations that are maybe take a fair amount of resource. I'm seeing a lot of sound and fury that means nothing, and I hate that. In general, I think that artists are using art to escape. I'm using art to not escape, to talk about things that we need to talk about. This desire to spark conversation definitely comes through in Morton's work and the piece that was chosen for the Woodmere Annual. It's called American Dream, and here James explains how it came to be. This is where I may be different. For starters, I'm right now deep into ancient African spirituality. Some of what that entails is trance and meditation. So what I'm saying is that my 
spirituality comes to me and tells me, do this or do that. And I do it to the best of my ability. My stuff comes from inside, and it's visceral, and it's about feeling. And the image kept poking at me. And actually, I carried it around for about a year in the back of my head. That particular image, the American Dream, is painful. It's not pleasant. It's not pretty. It's not supposed to be pretty. And that's what that piece is. It's actually a nightmare. It's kind of what I see when I have bad dreams. The darkness and there's a male figure, but he's not woke. His eyes are closed. There's a body count because I believe that this nation that we talk about being number one is actually founded on bodies, on Native Americans and Africans and all of those people who were killed to uh, make this uh, supposed to be great country that we talk about. So it's a nightmare and it's reflective of what I think America really is. This visceral element got Sid Carpenter's attention, and we're going to hear now from Sid about what Morton's American dream signifies to her. That symbol, the E Pluribus Unum, that's a promise. But at the same time, it has turned out to be a lie. And so in looking at the gesture of the young man, looking down and seeing the evidence of the lie, in terms of the skulls. The whole thing, to me, expresses a certain kind of sorrow, bitterness, and questioning at the same time, of the fact that you have the flag on one side and the figure on the other, and the skulls in the middle separating them, and, of course, the deterioration of the whole thing. There's probably a sequence of images that would come out of of this, it would be difficult to make a singular image that it is expressive of the many, many different problematic issues that are raised by juxtaposing a black male figure against the American flag. I mean, throughout history, the contradictions, the betrayals are so evident between the flag and the black male body. So anyone looking at it is going to be aware of a sense of trauma, a sense of betrayal, a sense of uh, all of these different contradictions. And there's a certain weariness that this piece evokes. There's a dimness to it. The flag itself is contorted. So there's all of these powerful messages coming off of this image. I think that it's timely that this image shows up when they've just opened the museum in Montgomery, Alabama to commemorate and acknowledge lynchings in this country, primarily of black males, but of children and women as well. So it's just, for me, seeing this image at this time, it, it's, it's lining up. There seems to be a kind of synergy around acknowledgement now that I think is going to be... A, redemptive. It's important that images like these be out there as much discomfort and maybe resentment 
and outrage as it may cause, you know, and I think artists are acknowledging it, that the conversation can begin with art making, that we can begin there, that it's a place, you know, coming to a museum and having those kinds of observations as opposed to going to Facebook or going to a newspaper or hearing Fox News or something. You come to a museum and have these kinds of truths presented to you in the form of art. I don't remember my life without a camera. I have pictures from when I was in grade school. I used to bring my camera to school and take pictures in the playground. I think it's just part of who I am and what I've always done. That's Cheryl Tracy, who has a photograph in the annual. She originally grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania. Her mother is a visual artist, but when Cheryl was young, she gravitated towards dance and theater. But later on, she ended up working as a photographer. Everybody kept saying, oh, you really need to do this as a business. And I started a business. I would do this work for people, and I would, like, labor over the pictures and really look at them and, and, and try to make them the best they could be. And they would be so important to me, and then I'd give them to people, and they'd be appreciative, but it wasn't the same thing. And I thought, you know what, I, I really, I'm too vested in it emotionally. So as a business, it was very, very difficult. So I kind of morphed it into something else. So I do graphic design. It's a creative outlet, and I get to work with people, but I'm not, you know, emotionally invested in it. So I would do photography in conjunction with that, but right now, the photography for me is simply my expression, my love, my view, my documentation. And Shine, which is the title of Cheryl's photograph in the annual, comes out of this desire. She took it while on a trip to Africa, where she had traveled to Nairobi, Kenya, as part of a nonprofit yoga initiative run by her friend. The initiative specializes in an integrative mind-body method called Timbo, which is meant to help women heal from trauma. During that trip, Cheryl and others, including a Kenyan yoga instructor named Isaac, went on a hike in a forest. When I see this, I see Isaac, just a phenomenal human being. And we were just hiking. We were hiking, and he just, you know, ran up to this tree and just sat. And the sun just came. And he had this wonderful white shirt on. And it just, at that moment, I turned around, and it was just the dark into the light. It's the way the sun, at that moment, just lights him and the shirt. And even his leg, which then becomes part of the root. And it was like he became one with the light, with the tree, with the moment. And his shirt says, shine, which it's like everything coming together, the perfect storm. It looks very serene and whatnot. And this was actually playful. It's kind of interesting because it looks one way, but the moment and the experience are very different. You can't necessarily tell that from the picture, but in the same respect, when you look at it, it's something otherworldly almost. For Sid, the photograph resonates on a deeper level than Cheryl anticipated. You have a black male sitting in a pose that is associated with the Buddha. And there is this sense of enlightenment and otherworldliness. Now, when I look at this, the elegance of it was what first attracted me to it. And also this whole contradiction of 
thinking about the black male in terms of this kind of level of ethereal peace. And so that, to me, was a wonderful connection to the Morton photograph, to see this kind of ethereal beauty and glow and peace coming from a body that is generally associated with everything that would be opposite to that. And so this defiance of perception and how we perceive of the black male body and that she has located him in this elevated, beautiful, spiritual state in defiance of what would be imposed upon him just living every day in a pressurized society that sees him as a victim, sees him as a perpetrator, sees him as a predator, but refuses to see his humanity. I'm Sophie Sanders. We're in my studio in Palatine Village, Philadelphia. Originally, I grew up in New York City, and I've been in Philadelphia about 14 years almost. Growing up, Sophie's dad was a classical pianist and her mother a painter. She carved out her own creative expression in dance, and later she took to studying African dance. Within a year of moving to Philly, Sophie started a doctoral program in art history. So I wrote about African and African diaspora artists whose work really incorporates textiles, patterns, and uh, embellishment in a kind of very polyrhythmic way. And those influences, I think, are um, important because art is a very holistic thing in Certainly, many parts of Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa especially, art isn't separate. Music isn't separate. It just kind of permeates everything. So having studied lots of African dance and seen all these textiles and been very interested in these aesthetics, I wanted to write about contemporary artists that I felt evidenced some of these aesthetics. Not to say that everybody has that presence in their work, but it is a very pervasive thing in many artists' work. And it's also something that I think is under-acknowledged by the dominant art world. Over the years, Sophie has worked in various media and explored themes around women's rights and equality. Thinking about the women's body as this kind of place that all these politics are played out. It was really like during the Trump campaign and with all this vitriolic slandering of Hillary Clinton and the way in which he talked about his attacks on the female body and the sort of callous attitudes about women's rights, uh, human rights in general, and also immigrants and people of color. And it just got me so depressed. And I realized that the only place I felt safe and having a sanctuary was in the bathtub. And I thought of it as this kind of safe zone. And then I watched this film by Shireen Nishat, who I know is a wonderful artist from Iran, and she did this film called Women Without Men, which I've been showing my students. And I realized there's this scene in the film where there's this woman named Zarin who's a prostitute, like a sex slave, and she's 
floating in this water in this beautiful orchard and surrounded by plants. And, and it made me think of a really iconic pre-Raphaelite painting by John Everett Millay, which depicts a very light-skinned, red-headed woman floating, already dead, but very beautiful with her palms open in like a saint-like way and surrounded by beautiful flowers, which are symbolic as well. She's fully dressed. The model for that painting actually was an artist as well and was a favorite of the pre-Raphaelites named Elizabeth Siddell. And she herself was modeling for weeks in a bathtub that was heated by lamps. And one time the lamps went out and she got very sick. She got a cold and ultimately died of pneumonia. So it has a tragic story. Sophie set out then to create her Ophelia series in photopolymer and digital silk prints. And one of these images is in the Woodmere Annual. It features a woman in a bathtub crouched face down with flowers all around her. It is kind of like a yoga pose. It's almost like a child's pose. And I printed it in a very dark kind of a plum purple. I think that it's kind of like when you look at the back of a shell and it's so round and beautiful and smooth and you see the contours of her back and her buttocks and her shoulders and her head. It's, it's all very um, feminine looking. Uh, but there's a strength to it that's also sort of impenetrable. And I think even like the beads of water on her back also think you make think about sweat and women being strong and self-protective, you know. And so I think it's the kind of strength where you have to be internally strong. You have to have a core and you have to be able to be flexible and like keep getting up and trying better every day. So the core is what she's protecting, and the core is that looking inwards pose, you know, the way in which one looks inwards so you can look outwards with more clarity. When I chatted with Kakuli Velarde and Doug Heron, we sat in their kitchen where the walls are painted bright green and where art seems to be almost everywhere you look. One large wall is full of artwork made by their young daughter, Vita. Doug had just come back the night before from a big trip to Kansas, where he'd driven a U-Haul truck full of his ceramics and wood creations. I grew up in Pratt, Kansas. It's a small town, population 6,000, and actually just got back from installing an exhibition there. They built a small art museum there, a really nice one. But that's where I got my start in ceramics is Back in Pratt, after high school, I was at the junior college for a year before I was going off to college elsewhere. And I took a ceramics class, and someone had come in that was teaching a throwing class, and I just fell in love with that immediately. I thought I would probably be more interested in drawing and painting, and I think that's how everybody starts out. It's like you work with the materials that are easy at hand. But once you start discovering other media, I think that's when you really find out where your passions are. And for me, it's been in ceramics doing both wheel throwing and sculpture and it's been a long evolution in terms of like where the work has gone uh, from where I started. I was just a very traditional potter in the beginning but the work I do now is really very different. It's still very vessel oriented but I do more furniture like pieces as well to accompany the pieces. It's been over 30 years working in clay and it's a very comfortable fit. 
Doug describes himself as a sculptor of large-scale vessel forms and a fabricator of tables and stands, but there are a few things that especially make him stand out in the world of ceramics, as you can see in his works showcased in the Woodmere Annual. I really felt like I needed to make a break somehow, and what I decided to do was to start painting on my work. Instead of using glazes, I started using oil-based enamel paints to get the color effects that I wanted. And it was the perfect fit for what I was trying to do. And I've been so happy with that ever since. And the furniture, the stands that I make also, is the other departure. I like making these stands for my pieces. So when I occupy a space, there's no white pedestals. It's just all of my own work. And I feel like it just activates the space because I use some really bright colors for my work. What I do when I'm working on a series of pieces uh, is to generate a lot of parts first, wheel thrown and hand built. And when I get ready to start assembling, I usually have a rough idea in my head what I want to do. But the final product is a toss up. I'll, when I'm working, I'll have like maybe four or five or six pieces at a time, and they all come up from the ground up at the same time. So I work on a little on each piece every day, assembling, and usually within a few days, I usually have the pieces finished. But it's taken about a month to prepare ahead of time, preparing all these parts and pieces. But I really like the improvised quality that they have, not knowing exactly how they're gonna uh, resolve themselves. There's a little bit of chaos, I think, with the pieces, but I feel like I am able to achieve something that's a little bit more interesting than planning everything out ahead of time, which I have to do for the stands, but not for these other pieces. <laughs> Doug ultimately ended up in Philadelphia because of a residency at the Clay Studio in the late 1990s, and that's where he and his wife Kakuli met. She'd come for a fellowship at the Clay Studio after having lived in New York City. The first uh, 10 years uh, in the United States, I lived in New York, and in that last Six of those 10 years, I lived in a squatter building without heat, with a, a portable kerosene heater, and a dog, and, and the eventual rat. My squatter building was in the South Bronx, allegedly uh, a dangerous uh, area. Uh, to me, it was great, and it was completely fine and safe. Sometimes it's in the eyes of the beholder. I lived there six years, and um, it was never a sacrifice. A sacrifice would have been to pay rent in New York. Kukuli originally grew up in Cusco, Peru, and her parents had been journalists, but... My father always wanted to be an artist, and he said it literally, that through my hands, he felt he could paint. So it was an enormous responsibility that he put on me as a very early age to accomplish his dreams. I was uh, actually a, a prodigious child. <laughs> I, I said that because I was uh, doing drawing since I was three, and at 10 I had my first solo show, and I had a solo show every year until I turned 21. I had a big show. I sold all the artwork. I was finding a freedom I never had. Then she went to Colombia and Mexico. But I never stopped uh, feeling uh, that I was an artist, uh, even though it was a big responsibility and a lot of pressure. On the other hand, and that you see when you are older, you realize when you are older. On the other hand, my father gave me the complete 
confidence that no matter what, I was an artist. Kukuli eventually made her way to New York City in the early 1990s and enrolled in college. And in 1992, there were big celebrations around the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's voyage to the New World. But Kukuli wasn't celebrating. I felt that it was very insulting to celebrate something that meant a genocide um, during a process of colonization in the continent. And in that moment was born uh, my first uh, series uh, that I titled We the Colonized Ones. And I went in the subway, I did small performances in the subway showing unborn babies that uh, never existed because their parents were killed. And therefore these children that could have existed never came to be. So I would carry these babies in the subway and people would ask me to look at my baby and then I would uncover it and show them this ceramic piece. And uh, and then I, I had the opportunity to talk about colonization and uh, coloniality and uh, what it means. And it was a way to, to do something. So that is how I got into ceramics. Um, it was the ideal medium for what I wanted to say. Kukuli's work today continues to explore what she describes as the consequences of colonization in Latin American contemporary culture. I feel like it's becoming more relevant just because of the time that we live, especially in this moment in which we are encountering unexplicable situations of racism, discrimination that are being allowed. And that was not something new, but it is uh, showing its ugly face more and more. And if we don't say anything, we are allowing it to happen. At the same time, Kukuli often references pre-Columbian art, which she considers to be her most genuine aesthetic inheritance. Her piece in the annual draws on that pre-Columbian influence. I have this new series, Corpus, and the piece that it's going, it is a piece that I love very much because it represents many things, among which is uh, my daughter and I. When I made that piece, Vida was around uh, three years old, so... It has her three-year-old little face and myself in the disguise of a pre-Columbian kupisnike ceramic. While Kukuli and Doug describe themselves as different from each other, everything from their backgrounds to the art they make, they've embraced those differences and have started collaborating around what they call symmetrical, pluricultural existence. Uh, which is pretty much impossible at this point. Uh, But there is the resistance and there's the fight. Uh, We were thinking, what could it be that we are basically representing two different worlds? Could we do something together? So we were aiming to do something that could talk about this cohabitation in life that we have and that we enjoy. So we have begun since Vida was born because Vida is the embodiment of our collaboration. And as humans, we collaborated and we're collaborating in this child. How could we collaborate as artists? Uh, People will see in the exhibition how different we are. I just can't wait to see what we do and hopefully uh, we will be able to get that symmetry. What strikes me most is how the art being made in Philadelphia today 
art that we've heard about in this episode, and all the other pieces Sid chose for the annual, are in an ongoing conversation with three specific works of art that create the overall frame for the annual. This is about self-representation. It's about representing in art our own story. And I think that that's a key point to be made always. When you consider these three works of art together, they provide a foundation for the exhibition overall, creating an arc through time and connecting three generations of artists, black women artists, who work with the body, history, and the experiences of life. The first piece is Selma Burke's bronze bust of educator Mary McLeod Bethune. Burke was a renowned 20th century sculptor, and the bust she did of Bethune was a gift to the museum from historian Charles Bloxham. The second piece is Barbara Bullock's Trayvon Most Precious Blood, which is a multimedia wall sculpture and the museum acquired it in 2014. Bullock created the piece in response to the death of Trayvon Martin in 2012. And third, Sid Carpenter's own work, a sculpture done in mixed media and part of a series and representation of her mother that she's calling On the Land and as a Provider. We're gonna hear from Sid Carpenter right now about Selma Burke. When I observed the Selma Burke piece of Mary McLeod Bethune, I look at the animation. I, I look at the positive gesture in this, the optimism. Uh, but at the same time, there is this sense of knowing. The fact that it's a small piece is also poignant to me. The fact that I know that there is a larger version of it. But somehow, the scale of this piece suggests that it be handheld. And so for that reason, it becomes a talisman to me. And the importance of it being touched and held is one of the most attractive aspects of this piece, that you can make that kind of physical connection with it. Here you have this icon of culture and history but now accessible in this size. And I think that that's having a more grand, large version of it would communicate certain things. And, and there's this certain kind of connection that comes from connecting to her and, and the history that she represents in this scale. So that speaks once again to just the formal elements and the communicative elements of sculpture as a way of speaking and so this whole idea of representing and how this thing is represented and how it will be seen and appreciated by an audience i think the intimacy of this is very very powerful the fact that the scale is small from selma burke sid makes the connection to barbara bullock and the aftermath of trayvon martin's death in 2012. We need to understand that Trayvon Martin represents a shudder, a bodily shudder that our country needs to acknowledge 
and she has represented it brilliantly in a piece that first engages you because of its exquisite visual qualities. It's this drawing in space. There's the materiality of it. There is the suggestion of torso, but then there is this explosive quality that's coming off from the piece. So here we have something that represents trauma, that represents a crime, that represents a reckoning that needs to be had, that, that our country is struggling to have. It's a sense of being pulled screaming and kicking into truth. And I think that it's important that artists use this opportunity to represent and to talk about and acknowledge their experience. And so much of the work in the show is doing that. And I think that hers is signature in terms of the things that I was trying to bring together in this exhibition, trying to find the work that really zeroed in on the body as a site of expression, as a reflection of, of the, the traumatized state that our country is in and possibly not being acknowledged by a large proportion of the country. There's a sense of denial, but I think that there is power in these objects and they need to be represented and focused upon and discussed. And Sid's own work keeps this conversation going and underscores the annual's exploration of movement through time, migration, the body, and the land. As African-American artists who are women, and over time, and as you pointed out, the three generations, you can see the poignancy of the personal in each of these works. I'm doing a series of pieces, and they are complete, around a representation of my own mother on the land and as a provider. It's mixed media. It's clay. It's glass. And the glass itself contains lentils. And it's this presentation of her as an iconic figure who contains, who provides, who's on the land, and it also references back into history. It talks about storage. So just looking at kind of an iconic figure that can be represented in a number of ways, but always back to this symbol of stability and persistence. I think that that's probably the most tangible thing that I want to express in this is this sense of persistence, forward thinking, reaching back to the past, but also being very, very much aware of your present and anticipating a future. We hope to see you at Woodmere. Please come see the annual, which runs from June 2nd through September 3rd, 2018. We also have an illustrated digital catalog on our website, as well as information about related events, including the open house opening reception on Saturday, June 2nd, starting at noon, and on Saturday, June 9th, join us for Sid Carpenter's Gallery Talk at 3 p.m. 
Special thanks to Warren Ori and the Arpeggio Jazz Ensemble for the music we've heard through today's episode. And special thanks to all the artists who applied to be in the show and those whose works are on display. This is an exciting time for the arts, and the artists of Philadelphia have a lot to say. We're so excited about the annual and look forward to seeing you.